Hello and welcome to the Cognitive Engineering Podcast produced by me, Fraser McGrewer, for Aleph Insights. In this series of podcasts, we take a look at interesting topics and discuss what we think they tell us about analysis and decision making. I'm here with Chris Ragg and Nick Hare of Aleph Insights, and this week we're discussing going on strike. Comrade Chris, um, going on strike. Well, brother. Um, <laughs> This, uh, this, uh, our viewers, uh, viewers, our listeners may not um, may not realise, but we record our podcasts in blocks of uh, five. Normally, we do them once a We're once pulling a month. back the curtain. Yeah, there, actually, I'm not sure about secrets. saying that. But anyway, yeah, I right. mean, yeah keep going. <laughs> anyway, this month uh, we can only do four. Yeah, um, and uh, so productivity cut. 20% yes. by uh, rail strikes. Um, so for those of you not in the UK, um, uh, the UK is having sort of widespread few days, basically a week of, of um, train strikes. Some days no services at all. Uh, today, um, other days like today, um, a limited uh, service being provided. Um, and so this meant we couldn't get to our recording studio in in time and so on. Apart from me, by the way, who had the furthest to come. But yeah, just saying. How, what me mecha mechanism? I drove. Transport? Right. I drove. Okay. Well, there yeah. you go. So that. <laughs> but then got that's, a tube. That'll be why then. Yeah, yeah. But if I drove, why couldn't everyone else? You should have gone on strike as a driver <laughs> in sympathy with the union. Um, you yeah. scab. Yeah. yeah, one out, all out. Um, anyway, so um, it got me thinking about strikes. We haven't had sort of strikes that have had a you know a significant impact like this for quite some some time. Yeah. Uh, in may, for many people, they're not really within their their living living memory, and um, so I, I started thinking about. Uh, strikes and whether they whether they're an effective bargaining tool um and you know what makes an effective strike what makes an ineffective strike uh do they uh do they work which um somebody uh, pointed out the um oxymoronic nature of that uh, that statement of whether whether strikes uh, work earlier but um so so yeah that 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 was it uh really and and and, and um, you know, we've now all got our own sort of personal perspectives on this particular strike um, uh, that I think will kind of give it a bit more um, colour. Yes. Um, and just to sort of go a little bit further. So do strikes work as in do they? Um, well, we might want to we'll probably want to talk about what work means in this context. Yeah. Do they mean you get what you want or not? Or yeah, um, I'm terrible. Oh, I, I just know that on this one. I bet Nick, when you were researching this, you were getting all excited and just went through game theory of stuff. So, I yeah, mean, loads of game this theory. Goes, I mean, it's going to be so much economics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, um, so, uh, so but first anyway, of all, wait, wait. can we just cover off yeah. the Nick, let's hear something it. that that Chris touched on, which is strikes. A lot of people, as as Chris mentioned, might this might be quite unusual for them for there to be a strike. But oh. <clears throat> let me tell you. That having been born in the 1970s, and yeah. certainly if you were born in the uh, in the 1950s or 60s, you would have lived through an era of vastly more yeah. strikes yeah. than we're used to uh, these days. If you um, were born in the what, just internationally or in the UK? Uh, well, actually, in in uh, well, I'll touch on the US. I haven't looked at other countries. I've just looked at the UK and US. Mm. Um, the actual heyday of striking of course was the was night was the general strike 1929 it was a real biggie 150 million 
working days lost um, as a result of the general strike in in that year. Um, and in fact, throughout the nineteen uh, sort of late nineteen tens, nineteen twenties, there were lots of lots of strikes, um, very common. Then it, then it, we have a quiet period. And the the striking takes off again, although no to nowhere near the same extent in the 1970s, where mm. um, you know people who were alive then will remember, you know, the the unions were a big thing. We had the um, the winter of discontent, and um, you know, and of course Margaret Thatcher came into power, and there were the battles with the unions mm. um, and the miners' strike and all that. So it's a big peak um, where in uh, two or three years, um, 25 million working days were lost. So that was approximately a day per person per year. Um, uh, of you know of strike time, mm. um, it's almost zero now. It's mm. effectively, it's, yeah, it's, it's it's I think uh, it has been rising. I think the data I could find, but it but it's in the in the low hundreds of thousands of, of days as opposed to tens of millions. Uh, and you you have a similar pattern in the US of um, there being kind of around there were around sort of four hundred strikes a year in the early nineteen seventies. Um, in the US, and that's a strike or lockout involving a thousand or more employees, plummeted in the 80s, um, and is is you know down to the tens now, um, which is uh, interesting and probably something we want to discuss is why why that why it doesn't happen anymore. Is it because it stopped being effective, or is it because of some other reason? I've but, got an answer. Um, but go anyway. on. Well, it sounds to me. I think I'm going to answer this in a slightly roundabout fashion which I, I know is not normal for me um <laughs> it'd be interesting to see if there's been a growth a, a, a correlative growth in income equality to those uh to that decline in strikes strike yeah well action. there hasn't because there's been there a, in, there's been a decrease in income equality over the last yeah, median wages have stayed uh, sort of more or less static in real term, and, and the to the sort of very highest earners now earn um, substantially more as a as a percentage uh, of the median wage than yeah. I think income inequality has grown significantly over the last sort yeah, of you know twenty years. That's so. what I'm trying to say. Yeah, so, so there's more income inequality. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and so and so and then that ties into my actual answer, mm. which is well, the capitalist one kind of thing. The, oh, okay. The, yeah, the capitalist overlords have won. And, and so therefore, and they crush the unions. And so now we have, you know, uh, kind of the other end of the scale, this sort of gig economy and, and, the, the, and the power um, mm. no longer lies with the worker. Well, yeah, I mean, when you say they've, they've crushed the unions, I mean, unions aren't illegal. There's no. nothing stopping anyone being but, in a union. But membership, so I, th I think that's, that's a really interesting sort of direction because I would have argued the opposite, right, which is that actually... The unions won. So in 1926, the general strike, uh, the big mining barons and industrialists yeah. were were um, doing things like they wanted to maintain their profitabil profitability. Yeah. So they um, they they reduced miners' salaries so that they could maintain their profitability during a drop in in coal yeah. prices. Yeah. Right. Today, like now, it's about can I have ten percent or five percent? You know, then it was how about ten percent less? You know, um, otherwise you're out, um, sunshine. Yeah. So, um, and off the back of the the, the general strike, you know, um, labour laws were reformed and changed and yeah. so on. And so many of these predatory capitalist uh, sort of uh, practices. Um, 
are no longer are no longer legal, and so now. so the, the sort of in a sense um, the, the the unions are, are you know established and and won their cause. And to back that back that idea up, if you look at union membership over over time, uh, it climbed to a sort of peak in the seventies eighties when when all that industrial action was was going on, and then it shrunk away. So it's like. 13, uh, yeah, 13 million, I think. Is it's that now job done? It's now about 4 million. Well, or, or to play devil's advocate with myself, mm. uh, is it actually now that those large um, national state employers are gone, the, the days of large bodies of labor are, are gone, as you were saying, you know, maybe, maybe it's, it's shifted the other way. So I think, I think that that's crux to the debate of what's going on with yeah, striking. Yeah. So I think you're definitely right about workers' rights, workers' conditions. Um, but one thing I would wonder about, like I say, this growth in income inequality, um, which, as we said, over like, the last 20, 40 years has really accelerated, which to me suggests that, um, well, that, um, yeah, the, the capitalists well, have won. If unions didn't work and were useless, yeah. And if striking didn't work, why would Amazon be trying so hard to clamp down on it? You know. So I think I think there is something in what you're saying. I think and a, a more even more well not even more cynical, but a, a more cynical approach might be to say, well, actually, the reason a lot of people don't think they want to join a union is is because they've also been brainwashed by predatory capitalists into thinking that actually they have more market power than they do. You know that actually a lot of people might sort of think, well, I don't, I don't, I can just go and get a job somewhere else if, mm. you know, if I get treated bad. It's not like the old days when you got one factory in town and there's no other jobs. I mean, these days, you know, fine, I, I can go, you know, the labour market's very fluid. I can go and get a job somewhere else if I'm. What's the point of a union? You know, I don't want to be doing this job for the rest of my life. And I think as some people <clears throat> might say, well, that's just you've been brainwashed into thinking I, that's what. I, I also think. That if you look at the sort of backdrop to what's going on, uh, that probably plays a part as well as to why we might be seeing a, a potential surge. We, you know, we might predict there's going to be a potential surge in striking coming up. You know, one factor, as with the 1970s, is the rate of inflation. So, you know, why do people strike? Well, often it's to get more money, right? It's either about conditions or it's about how much they're, they're paid. Um, and uh, people are more likely to want more money when inflation is, is high, right? So, you know, that, that, there's that. But there's also the fact that in this country, um, uh, you know, we've got quite high employment at at the moment, so it's not like there's a big surplus of of and and we have uh, Brexit and other sort of um, uh, pressures, you know, affecting the the, the labour market yeah. and the availability of work. Uh, and so maybe they feel they hold the whip hand a bit more. So I think as well as what's gone on with jobs and people's views and so on, that macroeconomic uh, backdrop probably plays a part as well. So, so far we've talked a little bit about um, strike activity, how much there is, and we talked about some of the underlying reasons for it. Are we ready yet to talk about how effective it is or not, on, and whether it whether strikes are good at achieving their aims? Well, I just, or, but, I, but, I just but want to Nick, spend 20 or 30 it. minutes talking about the game theory. Brilliant. Uh, 
<laughs> I so, thought we were going to go on to um, um, wage inflation. and the, but, No, but this no. is interesting because this does give us some concrete things to look at and to think about. It gives, the economics obviously gives you a framework to, to understand what's going on with a strike. Mm. Start with the Rubinstein bargaining model, mm. which is an absolute... It's where I usually start, yeah. yeah it's uh, an absolute landmark of game theory. It shows that sort of a standard model of um, of, uh, of bargaining. This, so striking is generally about bargaining. There's a pot of cash. But at the moment, it's going into your pocket as the big capitalist business owner. And instead, it should be going into my pocket mm. as a worker. Mm. And so the, you, you normally start from the assumption that, that and this is with specifically about pay rather than other things, conditions mm-hmm. or whether drivers should operate doors and those kinds of things. Although you might see that those things are actually in effect ultimately about yeah. But I mean, anyway, th- this is assuming that there's um, there's a, a surplus of value, yeah. which at the moment you're getting and I want it. Yeah. Now, but the problem is there's only one of you and there's hundreds of us, right? Which actually means you have the market power. Um, Who am I again? You're the capitalist okay. business owner. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And, and you can choose not to hire us. Yeah. Individually, I can't go on strike by myself because, you know, I can't really make much difference to you. Um, you... You know, just like a market, if you're there's one buyer for labor and hundreds of sellers of labor, you know, the sellers are going to be selling for, you know, pretty much their the minimum that they would accept. So they have to all work together. They've got to bargain together. Yeah. And and otherwise it doesn't work. I can see a, how this you, relates you get a free you get yeah. a free rider problem. Yeah, yeah. You know, you get tragedy of the commons because all that it takes is one person to say, well, I tell you what, I'll I'll work for only a pound more. Forget about the rest of those strikers. And then, hey, presto, everyone goes for that. You know, the whole thing falls apart. Um, but the Rubenstein bargaining model takes that and it shows, you know, that the whole point of a strike is that, well, we're losing money as things go along every every for every day we're on strike. I'm not getting paid. You're not earning any profit. We're all worse off. Um, and and really, uh, so in this model, they make offers and counter offers, but everyone has a sort of incentive to, to, to get back to work. But what the model shows is that it's whoever cares more about time does worse. So if I've got to put food on the table, if the strikers are all, you know, have no strike pay, no one's, and they're, you know, their families are starving, they're going to concede more readily than than vice versa and similarly if the you know, company if losing profits is very important to them um then you know they will concede. so what's the model but, well the point of that the, but the interesting thing is that it ends immediately in the model the the first offer is made with people knowing all that so the fact that there is ever a strike shows that some assumption of that model is untrue. It's a great place to start, but but if there's ever a strike, it shows that some assumption is untrue. And I think generally the thing that people think is untrue is the complete information. So it's a bit like a war. Mm. Like if we knew who was going to win a war, you'd never get into a war in the first place because you're better off just saying, okay, well, I know you're going to win, so I might as well concede. You're still better off than fighting the war and then having to concede, mm. right? And it's the same with a with a... Uh, so, so there's an uh, an information problem. We both think that we're going to win. That's why we're yeah, in the we war. have a lack of understanding of, of, of the other side. Exactly. Yeah. And, and so the thing about uh, a strike is that it shows that we don't actually know how str- how much the other person cares about time. Effectively, there must be some lack of information for a strike to occur. And and in a sense, you've got to sort of run the experiment to find out who yields first. It is like a war of attrition but where you don't know how much attrition 
space is left for the opponent. Mm. So that's anyway, that's and probably that's the only way to find the information. Right. Is this what we're saying? Yeah, because because no, you don't have an incentive to tell the truth. You yeah. have an incentive to lie. In the same way you have an incentive to lie about how strong you are as a country, you have an incentive to lie and say, well, I don't care if you go on strike. You stay on strike for a year for all I care. And the strikers, you know, similarly have an incentive to say, well, we'll walk out at the drop of a hat and uh, it does no skin off our nose. Yeah. So the only way you can find out if that's true is by having the strike. Yeah. And and so I think so that's the, the key. I think the key outcome of what I'm saying is that there is an information failure, um, which is which is how you have the strike in the first place. Yeah. But the reason for the strike is always and and this is really important for thinking about why the structure of society uh, why the structure of the economy might have changed striking behavior but that there's always has to be some surplus some pot um which we can fight over yeah and and so striking is so the term in economics is rent seeking yeah you know we're not trying to add more value it's not an argument about adding more value it's an argument about who gets the value that's already there mhm mm mhm mm um I completely understand the um, the game theory application there. I don't didn't understand what bit was different um, about the the Rubenstein model, or is it more or less the way you've described things is the well, analysis no, you the Rubenstein model is, is it says well if you have perfect information, yeah, the strike never happens yes. because you just gotcha. yield straight away and you end up with a settlement that reflects your your power nice. effectively. Okay, yeah. Uh, Chris. Yeah, well, I think I think this shows why probably uh, why why strikes. Uh, certainly in this country are structured in the way they are and why unionization is often structured in the, the way it is. I mean, uh, most people's uh, mental image of a, of a union boss, right, in, oh. the U in the UK is of a sort of, ma well, like, so the rail maritime... Peter Sellers in uh, yeah, I'm All Right Jack. Exactly. Uh, the, the rail um, maritime and transport um, union, which is the RMT, which is, you know... Um, coordinating the the rail strike at the moment mick lynch is is their their boss and he is that classic uh you know throwback um uh, union boss of, of a sort of, of a, 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 you know a macho uh conf confrontational burly kind of um uh, person is he the one and that the guardian's raving about that they love him and they said this is why the media loves him yeah well i've seen memes go around saying you know um he's he's so tough he doesn't turn the light on he turns the darkness off and, <laughs> uh that kind of stuff um so there's uh, yeah there's a there's, he's got a big big kind of following and uh, so on but you know this this notion of presenting uh an aggressive and um sort of um, unyielding. Un unyielding and able to deal with the consequences approach is probably, you know, that that dynamic of game theory is why why that exists. And, and you know, that's why in response to that, you might get um, political leaders like Margaret Thatcher, for example, you know, following the winter of discontent that you, you know, the country turns around and goes, hang on a minute, we need our equivalent of of that strident, yeah. uh, you know, not not macho in that case, but but obviously powerful and un, unyielding. Um, so uh, so yeah, I think that's quite a, quite an interesting um, sort of thing. And I, I've got a kind of I've got I've got a set of thoughts. I, I mean, it's interesting that you know Nick has said, well, both sides think they can can win, and 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 that's probably the case. But you know, ideally. There's probably another. Uh, there's there's probably another um, 
approach that you don't see, you know, strikes are a rarity in this country. And even in the 1970s, they were probably still a still a, a rarity. There were probably far more negotiated agreements. In fact, uh, before the winter of discontent, the thing that set it all off was the Ford, the Ford workers' 17% pay rise that they they negotiated without the the requirement for um, uh, for a strike. So, um, uh, you know, there's a much more consensual approach, which goes on presumably all of the time when strikes aren't aren't happening, right? Which we which we kind of miss. But my my theory uh, or, or, or the sort of factors that I think could help people avoid strikes and and get the information that they need to know whether or not they will win as the industrialist or the uh, or, or the union um, relates to a number of things that I think play into whether a strike is successful or not. Um, and these boil down to um, essentially public support always seems to be a factor whether or not the public are generally sympathetic to the the existence of the, the strike in the case of this rail strike uh latest polling has said 37 percent of people support it 45 percent um, oppose it but interestingly uh in the over 65s 66 percent of people oppose it remembering the 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 1970s presumably but in the 18 to 24 category 48 percent approve it which is higher the than people the at other. the coal face of rapacious capitalism yes. that's right yeah, yeah. The, the the um uh, the people who don't don't remember the 1970s sort of general public sympathy i think is a, is, is a factor there's then the issue of the strength or weakness of your opponent uh so um in, in this case we have uh you know, a slightly uh, a government in disarray, you know, many would argue, and maybe that's invited, you know, maybe they look weak and like they're, they're um, uh, there for the taking effectively. Yeah. Um, the other thing I think is an, like an achievable cause, like the 1980s miners' strike, Yeah, they were trying to reverse totally pit closures, yeah. right, in the face of the international coal market, which was pushing in one direction only. Um, and so, you know, it's all very well saying, well, yes, you want this thing, but this thing, if it's impossible, uh, you know, um, then then it's not going to happen. And then I think the other thing you need is like your hand has to be strong. You have to have something that people value. Right. Yeah. So in the case, again, of coal strikes, well, we could go and get our coal from the international market. We didn't necessarily need it or um, but in the case of your trains, you can't really import your train service. You might be able to import the workers, you know, and, and, and Reagan tried that, I think, in the in the air industry. Um, but uh, you ca you can't, you know, you can't replace that service instantly. So they've got a sort of strong a strong hand to play. When they withdraw their service, it's like, oh, we kind of need need that, don't we? Um, so I, I think that's uh, that's a set of factors that are, um, uh, you know. Um, relevant to uh... absolutely um and actually one thing you you said there which reminded me of something is um uh, in brazil um like in many countries you've got different levels or jurisdictions of police so you will have your i think the your municipal police you'll have your state police you will have your um you certainly got your military police who are really Basically, they're the guys you don't want to mess with. Um, they're the federal police. I don't know if there are any federal in addition to them, but also then you've got people like the transport police as well. And 
um, way more divided up than somewhere like the UK, where, okay, we've got different constabularies, departments. Anyway, it's very much divided up. But when I lived there, um, the municipal police went on strike um, for about a week and then just went back to work again. And the reason why is because it's made no difference because they're just a bit useless. Um, oh, that's really sad. <laughs> yeah. because so the there, ones... wasn't, there wasn't a sudden outbreak of anarchy and chaos? No, there was not. And the reason why is because of the Policia Federal, the federal police. Uh, no, the no, Policia Militar, um, the military police, who, who just, they're the ones who Turned are really up, yeah. in charge. So you don't worry. Yeah, the muni they've even got crappy uniforms and crappy cars. So so as you say, it's got to be, you've got to have something that, mm. you know, that people are going to miss. Right, where are we? Yeah, that's an interesting, I know, but I mean, that is also another thing you're finding out, I guess, is how essential your industry is. One of the things that, um, I mean, I, and I think this perhaps gets onto some of the speculation about why strikes might have declined, but is is that there has to be a sort of, you know, inflexibility in demand somewhere for a strike to work. I mean, if let's say that you have perfect competition for steel, that means that steel plant owners are all going to be selling steel at, you know, pretty much more or less what it costs to make. And there's no surplus really on the table, Right. That every pound you give to a worker is, um, you know, is a pound that you you're going to have to charge more for steel, and you won't be able to sell it. Um, so it kind of depends on there there being this this world of um, of uh, sort of some kind of market power that you have as, as a firm, some kind of monopoly. And if you then find out you don't have it because your operation shut down and everyone switches to a different company then obviously that's a terrible outcome for everyone mm. and um yeah i mean there's i think there's the history is replete with examples of people who've um the example i often rely on is um the uh, uh it's not quite industrial action but it's pretty similar it was the narrowboat men of birmingham in the uh, right. in the 18th century who um in order to protect to protect their narrowboat industry from competition from wide barges mm. um it, it, they they compelled the uh the uh, builders of the Grand Union Canal and other canals to to put these narrow locks in so that only they could get through. Mm. And of course, um, without without being able to use barges, what came along was trains, mm. and people started using trains. They, they they could have been competitive. Wide barges on canals, kind of actually pretty, you know, on a cost basis, pretty competitive with trains. But um, they were locked out of that capability so yeah i think that's another interesting thing mm. you find out when you shut your business down you've you know well consumers find out if there is there a better alternative and mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um right where do we go we need we're sort of you know near the end um what do we want to cover what haven't we talked about yet got a few speculative reasons why you don't see strikes anymore and by the way as an aside one of the things i love is every time i go to france yeah, there is there is always a strike. I, I've never just been like in the Fr olden days. Yeah, I've never yeah. been to France, and without there being some kind of demonstration. And is it usually the baggage handlers? Isn't it? I feel like oh, it's always some. I don't know. It's it's air traffic controllers. Yeah, yeah, it's it's great. I mean, thank you, France. You know, it's for fulfilling my cultural prejudices. Um, well, yeah. they still haven't had their French Thatcher, have they? No. So no, they have you know, not. It's still got. Which is ironic because it's a very strong central state. But anyway. Um, Nick, what, so what were you saying? What were I, I, I've... Well, I, I, this is only speculative because I couldn't really find anyone who's looked at this in detail. But some reasons why um, you why there is less union activity. Yes. Why yes. national? Yes. So I think the key story 
is obviously a decline in heavy industry and and automation in heavy industry as well. Um, you know, it's very hard to... A, a robot doesn't care if you call it a scab. It's still going to keep working. Um, when you're competing against machines, uh, unions don't help. You can't get a robot to join the union. It just won't. It just won't do it. They're mm. not interested. Mm. <laughs> so... Um, but I think if you look at the sort of structure, the, the economy, um, uh, you, you know, has moved substantially towards services. I mean, we've still got a lot of manufacturing. Manufacturing hasn't really declined that much, but as a percentage of the economy, it's declined. Mm-hmm. Um, and in services, uh, generally, you know, labor is a much bigger cost. It's, no, it's not the case that, you know, you, when you've got a big factory, for example, uh, some of the costs are the machinery, some are labor. And, you know, you, you, some of the return, in inverted commas, is, is for the machinery. So, you, you know, as a, as a capitalist, you own the factory. You are getting income that, you know, is due ultimately from your ownership of the machinery. But in the short run, that machinery can't be moved around and reallocated. Okay, so, yeah. so it's, you know, there is, a, there is surplus value, certainly in the short run, which unions can try and capture. Uh-huh. But that's not the case with services. There isn't some other aspect of the business which is generating money that you that you can grab some of. So there's a sort of fixed capital element. I think in manufacturing, firms tend to be larger and have more market power. So that goes back to what I was saying about there being more more kind of value on the table. Um, and obviously, service labour markets are more mobile than people working in a big factory. So uh, an example from my own family history is my... Um, uh, grand, my granny used to work, do seasonal labour for my granddad. Um, so she used to work for him. He was a farmer, okay. and so he would take on labourers at harvest time, or whatever. And she was one of them. Anyway, she didn't like uh, what she was getting paid, so she went down to Mister Coates's farm down the bottom. bottom oh, good road for her. Work. Exactly. I like that. She but got the, on her bike. Yeah, but the point <laughs> is that she um, she had the power to do that because Mister Coates had a farm. But if you only had one coal, if there's only one coal pit in your town, you can't do that. But s- services, um, you know, are not don't have anything like that sort of level of concentration it's you it's, it's much easier to move around between which is good for you as a worker but it actually is bad for workers because it makes the free rider problem worse uh-huh. um, it's harder to put people mean, yeah. to put people into a union and get them to bargain collectively because they're much more fluid you yeah. know yeah, yeah. um but so, equally you're incentivized as an individual to be a good and high valuable worker and to sort of be more productive so that you... But this is yes, lots of I, other things. So that's another and, thing, yeah. which I think is the nature of work, that where workers are a sort of amorphous mass and they're just providing bashes of a hammer onto a bolt, you know, yeah. thousands of times a day, um, and they can be switched out for one another, you, you just, you know, the, the it makes sense for them to bargain collectively because they're collectively providing that, service but when everyone is different and everyone's doing different jobs there is the you 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 can be a sort of one man union effectively you can bargain on behalf of your own job and i think that's you could say that that's what's been happening absolutely um nice uh, i've got a question before i do um anything you want to cover off anything else okay um yeah here's my question i've had lots of jobs hmm Lots. I once counted them and I didn't even quite believe the answer. But we're talking dozens, dozens. Yeah. 
Um, and I know plenty of people who've perhaps had no more than two, three, four, five mm. in their whole life. But I've had. What a do lot. you mean, like a job? Do you mean like working for a different employer? Yeah. Right. Well, yeah. Well, what else? Well, you can move around within a. Oh know, no, no, no! Within an organisation, no, okay. no, 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 nothing like that. Um, and um, I mean, without going through them all, lots of those jobs have been good. Lots have been bad, depending on how you might define that. Um, interest. What's the worst job you've ever had? Who, shall I, who wants to kick off? Well, I, I mean, look, I sound really ungrateful. This is only the worst job I ever had through virtue of it having been the worst of a not particularly bad set of jobs, right? Um, it was the most boring job I ever had, but I was perfectly well paid for it, and it was a yeah. summer job I had, and so I was, you know, I wasn't very employable. Um, but my job was to update legal books, and legal books um, in those days. Nowadays, I think it's all done on computers, but back in the nineties. They still had hard copies of these big ring-bound law books. There'd be like, you know, 15 volumes of, of tax law. Um, and so I was working at these lawyers, and, and they would get the updates, and the updates would come in a, in a kind of shrink-wrapped envelope, and you'd undo them, and there'd be uh, several hundred pieces of paper, each of which was ever so slightly subtly different from the piece of paper that was currently in that, that book. And, and then there'd be an instruction sheet, and it would say, replace page 1378B with this new page 1379A. And you'd have to go through and literally one page at a time, take the old one out and put the new one in. And that's what I did nonstop for about two weeks uh, every, every holiday. Um, and it was, yeah, it was really, really tedious. But, um, uh, I mean, luckily I was paid for completing the job so it was like a you know once it was done it was done so that kind of incentivized me to to get it finished but that that reminds me when i interned once in a in an ngo in in geneva and i was talking i was sounds hell <laughs> yeah oh it was oh terrible um but i remember i wanted to everyone was desperate geneva's full of interns who were desperately poor trying to get something somewhere so with one of these um amazing in ingos all over the place and ngos but i met someone who worked at the red cross and mm. he he had managed to make that leap from uh interning into an actual job but his job at the red cross i think he That's was always a lawyer. the promise yeah well right. he was a lawyer or, or something for the red cross big deal um but i think his was was adjusting legal document but like you've said it is it what would you what do you call it like a bibliography or whatever at the end of uh of an essay or mm. that was just making sure it was all standardized that was his right. job it's like oh wow so after all this months that's what brilliant we can get that but well, I think he's probably head of, of international like the, rescue the wax now. on wax off of the of the job world and i think you know it's important that everyone does a job a bit like that at some point yeah absolutely uh chris yeah so i um i was brought up so so my my dad came from a from a from a working class northern background uh, and he did jobs, you know, in in like soup factories and things things like that. Um, uh, he then became a professor, a university professor, and I didn't have a, a background or anything like that. So I didn't need a job when I was at sixth form college and so on. But all my friends had jobs, and so I sort of felt a bit left out, like that they were going off to work in a Burger King or something, and I didn't have a job. So I decided to get a job in a local supermarket uh, a chain called Normans in, okay. the, in the south in the southwest, and um, and I I I lasted about 
three shifts, I think. Mm. Um, the first shift, a woman came up to me and said, uh, do you know where the calamari is? That squid, you know. And I was so incensed <laughs> that she thought I didn't know what calamari was that I think I said something very rude to her or something. Oh, really? Um, Good for you. And, anyway, uh, and then on, about, on my third shift, uh, like halfway through, I was supposed to be moving some tomato ketchup bottles when they were glass bottles and they didn't have the plastic ones. And I knocked them off the shelf and they smashed on the floor. And I was like, oh, um, I went to tell my supervisor, there's some stuff smashed there. Yeah, okay, you need to clear that up. And I was like, what? M what, me? Me, I need to clear. The so, guy who smashed it has to clear, yeah, to clear it exactly. up. Exactly. <laughs> so um, so I, I, I resigned on the spot. <laughs> uh, so, so yeah, that was uh, my, my um, uh, yeah, ill-fated job at Norman's supermarket. If they could see you now, though. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah look how they, I've risen. Yeah, they, they, these days, if you smashed a ketchup bottle, they'd get someone else to get Yeah, yeah, yeah with their face, yeah. <laughs> um, I've jotted down a few of the jobs I've done. Call centre handler, I've done loads of those. Newspaper round, of course. Uh, double glazing salesman, that was one of my early ones, that was good. Um, got sacked from that. I got sacked from lots of these jobs, by the way, and, and lots of other jobs as well got sacked from. Burger van, that was really good. Uh, shelf stacker, I always I got in trouble for stacking the um, cornflakes wrong. Handyman at the local district council, that was really good. If ever I was, there was not much going on, I used to grab a hammer and just walk around the offices with a hammer. Yeah, nice. Looking purposeful. And if I was really wanted to do it, I'd grab a stepladder as well. Have you ever been on strike, though? No. Oh, OK. I've been, I actually been on strike. Really? Yeah, I used to be in a union. Ah. When I was in the uh, in the MOD, in the yeah. so yeah, I think yeah, yeah. I went on like a day or two strike nice. once. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I should have asked that question. Actually, have you ever been on strike? Have you, Chris? No, I think I always. Uh, I, I don't. A, think, I don't think I've ever to, Yeah, I don't think I've ever belonged to a union. Yeah, I think I have once when I worked at Chatham House. Nearly there, putting crayons in boxes. Um, that was a bit boring. The two worst I've had was um, chlamydia. Not yeah. <laughs> lovely girl. Yeah. <laughs> So I was in this factory that manufactured chlamydia test kits. Mm. And my job was with a pair of tweezers, had to put this little pad onto the plastic receptacle and just on a conveyor belt that went round. And um, that's why I did that sort of all day long. You were basically cheaper than a robotic arm. <laughs> yes, <weren't they>? yes. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And then in the evenings, I went to work at a horrible pub. Um, but the worst one, which only lasted an hour or so, was um, I was in a... Um, a um, a factory that manufactured car seats, um, just the mould, the foam, whatever it is, I don't know. And my job was to stand there with a hoover next to this huge clunking iron steel thing going round, hoovering off the scraps that had been left on the steel mould or on the iron mould. And that was my job. And I, I did that for about an hour and I said, I'm not doing this anymore. Mm. So um, that is You can my suck win. it up, you yeah. said. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Thank you. Very good. Yeah. And I remember saying that to a mate of mine once and he said, well, the worst job I ever had was taking the kidneys out of chickens. And he said, <laughs> he said, my hands just stank of piss, basically, or couldn't mm. get rid of the stink of chicken, yeah. chicken weed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. Um, Great. Too much information. Now probably got that around. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah. Let's stop there. Uh, thank you, as always, for listening to the Cognitive Engineering Podcast. I'm Fraser McGrewer. We've been here with Chris Rag and Nick Hare of Alif Insights. Until next time. Goodbye. Mm.